I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today. He is Executive Director of the Center for Japanese Legal Studies at Columbia Law School, Nobuhisa Ishizuka. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. A number of contemporary democracies are reevaluating their constitutions. Uh, Japan is among those that had been deliberating about the reform of its government and specifically the potential for constitutional overhaul. Um, as we record this now in 2021, embarking on a new legislative year for the Japanese government, what is the status of the reforms that were considered or being contemplated for uh, the constitution in Japan? This is a, a fascinating topic uh, to uh, dive into, Alex. Um, the, the irony of the Japanese constitution is why it hasn't already been amended. Uh, and the COVID situation only highlighted uh, some of the, the issues that the government faces in trying to deal with national crises and emergencies. There is no provision in the Japanese constitution uh, that permits the cabinet uh, to act uh, in, in a national emergency uh, of this type. Everything uh, has to go through uh, the national legislature and be approved. Um, and the constitution itself with its uh, uh, guarantee of freedom of assembly uh, has constrained the government response in their ability to impose uh, isolation or lockdowns. Uh, and so the response has been entirely voluntary. This is just one of the examples where uh, there has been over time since the post-war constitution was promulgated in 1947 for the flexibility to uh, uh, enact amendments. Now, the bar is quite high in Japan. It requires an absolute uh, two-thirds vote in both the upper and the lower house, and a majority of votes cast in a public referendum. The other driver for change has been the fact that this constitution is something that has not come into being through uh, the normal uh, quote unquote political process that most nations undergo. It was actually drafted and in the view of some uh, imposed on Japan uh, during the occupation period. In fact, it was the highest priority of the occupation authorities to uh, implement uh, a constitutional uh, uh, reform uh, of the prior uh, instrument. So the, it, there was an assumption from very early on that this document would be revised, amended, or perhaps even completely replaced by a document of Japan's own uh, making. Uh, but uh, yeah, interestingly enough, over the past 70 plus years, there's not been a single amendment to the constitution. Whereas, for example, in the US, there have been 18 amendments and six of them have occurred since the war. And Japan, if you count the fact that it was technically an amendment of the prior 
Constitution, which goes back uh, to uh, 1889, uh, is the 10th longest um, constitution uh, in terms of duration in the world. Uh, and it has never been put to a public referendum. What's so fascinating about the elements you describe is it it really does resemble the situation in Chile and, and to an extent the situation in the United States with respect to the two-third requirement, the supermajority requirement, and in the case of Chile, the other parallel is that the document was constructed outside of the current existing government and framework. Um, the question of constitutional reform now, very specifically um, in terms of the momentum it had moving into 2020, just speaking logistically right now, what are the, the potential avenues for further advancing the constitutional reform this year? Yes, um, the constitutional uh, amendment process uh, is is something that is uh, driven by domestic politics, as one would expect. Uh, public opinion in the area uh, has, although trending more uh, towards supporting uh, amendment, uh, has not been decisive. Uh, so the ruling uh, political party, the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, uh, has had to, at various times, uh, and and including this coming year, uh, has had to navigate uh, the local political currents. Uh, there are three events this year that affect the domestic political calculation. The first, of course, being the pandemic uh, and the effects on the economy that it's having. Uh, the second is the Olympic Games uh, in July, August, uh, upon which a, a lot of the uh, effects on the economy will potentially be determined. And Japan needs a successful games. Uh, the third item that is on the horizon are elections that have to be called uh, before September. In the midst of all this, the current prime minister, who has been viewed as a, uh, a successor in the sense of continuing the policies of the former prime minister, Abe, uh, has been experiencing a significant drop in popularity, uh, partly driven by uh, missteps uh, in the COVID response, uh, partly driven by a personal style, which is not uh, uh, perceived as being particularly communicative uh, in the midst of this crisis, uh, and, and a couple of other factors. Uh, he has been a longtime ally of Abe, he was there, convinced him to run uh, for his uh, eight-year second term, uh, but he has been less effective in managing the political situation. So uh, in, in terms of the legislation, uh, there is a public referendum law that will govern how uh, the referendum process, public referendum process will uh, play out. 
And there have been discussions uh, on potentially revising that law. Uh, And in addition, there is a coalition partner uh, that has uh, a, a, a different political agenda, uh, but whose votes will be required to uh, pass uh, amendment proposals. Uh, there are constitutional committees uh, of both the upper and the lower houses that have been um, formed and had been in discussions, uh, but those discussions uh, are on and on again and off again. And uh, last, uh, I followed it, which was towards the end of last year, uh, they had uh, suspended their activity uh, because of um, objections of, of opposition and coalition uh, partners to um, the discussions. So at the moment, the discussions are, are on hold. And given the political situation, there's, there's a high degree of uncertainty whether it would be politically possible to revive the prospect uh, of amendments uh, in the coming months. Prior to the pandemic, what was the public sentiment and what was the most compelling factor for a, a constitutional overhaul or constitutional revision? Right. At the level of uh, the impact on the day-to-day lives uh, of the Japanese people, um, there are uh, a couple of things. The emergency powers um, uh, of the cabinet is one that comes to mind because uh, the lack of the ability uh, of the cabinet to uh, act decisively in emergencies really came to the uh, uh, public consciousness during uh, the Kobe earthquake uh, a number of years ago uh, and the Fukushima triple disaster. Uh, the earthquake, the tsunami, and uh, the nuclear uh, meltdown. Um, the imperial abdication issue uh, was very much in, in the public mind. Um, but probably the biggest uh, issue as it affects the U.S. Uh, and Japan, frankly, uh, in its role in the region uh, is Article 9. And that is the provision that was inserted uh, by the United States, which uh, by which Japan renounced as a sovereign right, uh, the ability to wage war or the ability to threaten or use force for the resolution of international disputes. And uh, it prohibited not only the use of force, but the maintenance of any military capabilities and prohibited Japan from maintaining uh, army uh, uh, or Navy. Ironically, Japan today is by various measures, either the sixth or the eighth um, largest or uh, uh, strongest military uh, in the world. Uh, and by some accounts, its military uh, spending uh, is greater than that of Great Britain. So the question naturally arises, how you square that circle? And it's been done through a progression of legislative, well, I, I should say government 
interpretations uh, of the provision uh, over the years. And as it turns out, uh, as the provision has been interpreted more liberally to permit more and more activities uh, of, of a military nature by Japan, those revisions and reinterpretations have coincided uh, at each turn uh, with uh, global developments in which the U.S. has had a direct interest. The, the rise of uh, the nuclear capability of North Korea, the first Gulf War, uh, the war on uh, terror, uh, the rise of China. Uh, in, in each of these situations, uh, Japan has gone through a series of examination and reinterpretations to permit it to align its policy uh, with that of the United States. And it is this part of it that is the most sensitive uh, and the most controversial in the discussion uh, of um, the type of amendments that, that might be on the table. Uh, and it's particularly important for the United States, and it has been uh, important because of the current uh, situation in Asia and the fact that because of these constraints, the burden, uh, the argument goes, is greater on the United States. Uh, and it exposes the United States more to the possibility that it will get drawn into the conflict, a conflict if one occurs in Asia, uh, because uh, of Japan's reliance on the U.S. for its deterrent capabilities. Now that the pandemic is front and center and the geopolitical escalation that occurred in the first months of the Trump administration and the negotiating or attempting to neutralize the volatile North Korea situation. Now that that is seemingly on the back burner, uh, there is a renewed focus on not just the pandemic, but economic insecurity and immobility and the economic effects on each country and each society. And to the extent that the North Korea situation was relevant in the day-to-day -day lives of the Japanese people, I would imagine that it's, it's rather small, if not negligible, in terms of the day-to-day -day impact on the Japanese people, and that the pandemic has uh, economically, and, and certainly from a public health standpoint, uh, taken over you know, as the primary focus. And I'm wondering if any impetus towards constitutional reform, like in Chile, with sort of the new generation demanding economic justice and rights, if there is any further elevation of the issue of the Constitution uh, beyond the emergency powers, and more specifically about how the country can recover economically and whether the Constitution ought to play a role in that. On the economic level. Uh, Japan had gone through a, a period, uh, it still is, uh, 
of uh, reconstruction uh, realignment that is largely bureaucratically driven. Uh, the issue of constitutional amendment uh, tends to come up during periods of crisis, stress, uh, anxiety. And, and in that sense, you're absolutely correct. Um, as the geopolitical um, uh, anxiety ebbs, so does the, the uh, consciousness of the need for or the desire for constitutional amendment or the, even the political uh, feasibility of it. Um, the, the constitutional instrument has not generally been viewed as the vehicle uh, by which uh, Japan uh, has addressed its economic needs. It it played a negative role, if I can put it in, in that sense, not in the sense that it was bad, but in the sense that uh, because it contained uh, this prohibition on rearming and using force, it was able to rely on, and it, this was a conscious policy uh, of Japan, to rely on the U.S. for its defense needs and deliberately, as a result, kept down its uh, expenditures on uh, military equipment and capabilities and was able to devote itself completely to the economic rebuilding uh, and growth of the country. And it was based on this uh, dynamic that the Constitution played a very significant role. Uh, so the period from approximately 1960, 1964, through uh, the early 90s, uh, Japan was able to use the Constitution as sort of a shield uh, to be able to divert its uh, national mission more towards economic growth. Um, and so there was, there hasn't been anything specifically in the constitution at a, at a popular public level uh, that has um, driven that. You define the Olympic games as, you know, what was to be an important moment pre-pandemic in the determination of how the constitution could or should be revised. Uh, now we're questioning whether the Olympic Games will even occur. Uh, based on the mitigation strategies being employed um, on the ground and the health outcomes right now, uh, which are obviously relevant around the world if you have um, athletes uh, potentially importing the virus from any and every country, uh, it, it does not seem like we can say with security or certainty at this point that the games will, will go forward. Um, but ultimately, do you think that, that uh, the Japanese government uh, believes that if they don't go forward, it, will, it would be catastrophic? I, I don't know uh, if, if the effect uh, would would rise to that level, but it would be a, a blow, uh, certainly. Uh, 
the mere postponement of the gains by some estimates has cost Japan an extra $2 billion on top of uh, the cost of, of preparing for the games, which by some estimates is up to around 15 to $17 billion. Um, the way this plays into the constitutional debate is that the government is, in my view, unlikely to push a constitutional amendment agenda while it is, it is struggling to deal with uh, the effects of the pandemic and, and trying to stage a, a, a successful games. Uh, compared to the other leading industrial nations, Japan is quite far behind uh, in its uh, vaccine uh, program. Uh, and it, it, by some estimate, estimates, won't get, the, uh, get access to the Moderna uh, vaccine until perhaps end of May. Uh, and they are only now starting to prepare for frontline uh, healthcare workers uh, to uh, be administered the Pfizer vaccine. So the prospects for wide availability uh, of the vaccine in Japan, um, such as you know, to be able to um, uh, enable uh, uh, the government to claim uh, some success, uh, looks like it's going to be quite a bit further down the road than it will be in the United States. And, and this will affect, I think, uh, the political situation and the ability of the government to um, focus on and carry out uh, agendas uh, that, that uh, the public don't feel are the front and center concerns at the moment. Where are we left now with this new Biden administration hoping to reset um, U.S.-Japan relations. Well, when when you hear uh, the uh, public policy uh, experts uh, on on this topic, uh, front and center uh, is the uh, importance of rebuilding the the trust uh, and the uh, underpinnings of the U.S.-Japan. Alliance. Uh, and it, by all accounts, the people who have been brought in to the Biden administration, uh, Kirk Campbell in charge of uh, East Asia policy at the National um, uh, Security Council, for example, uh, are, are very focused uh, and experienced uh, in this area. Um, the Japanese have been incredibly attentive uh, to that relationship. Uh, Abe was one of the few foreign leaders who was actually able to develop uh, a relatively positive and uh, continuously lasting uh, relationship uh, with our former president, um, which held Japan uh, in good stead. It didn't completely uh, immunized them, uh, but um, it was it was constructive. Uh, Japan has a very strong interest, very strong motivations 
on ensuring that the U.S. maintains a strong presence in Asia, uh, not just as a balancer, uh, but as a positive influence for uh, a a neutral um, order among nations. Uh, the the challenges that Japan faces is ensuring that the U.S. approach to the regional issues are fully committed and are consistent with Japan's views. The huge challenge that both countries have faced has been the fact that the Japan-U.S. relationship used to be uh, uh, adversarial in the sense that the uh, uh, reliability of Japan uh, as a uh, partner of the U.S. was seriously challenged during the trade wars of the 1980s. The relationship has come a long way since then. Uh, However, with the end of the Cold War, uh, and the disappearance of uh, uh, the Soviet Union as a global rival of the U.S., the U.S. and Japan both were confronted with a China that combined not only the threat, quote-unquote, in the minds of policymakers in the U.S., uh, but also the economic threat that Japan used to pose. That's all now in one country. Uh, represented by China. And so through that shift, uh, Japan has become joined at the hip with the U.S. What in in Japanese political circles, you know, what would be considered the smartest U.S. strategy for dealing with China? Uh, The the Japanese would like to see the United States uh, maintain uh, a firm attitude towards China. Um, There are elements uh, uh, in the Japanese political establishment uh, that would like to find areas uh, of cooperation with China. And the business interests uh, in a better relationship with China are, are strong. Um, the concern on the part of uh, the political leadership in Japan is that the U.S. will start compromising on the security front um, in order to achieve consensus or cooperation uh, in economic uh, or or other areas. Uh, and that is the uh, concern to to the extent that it exists, uh, that's driving a wait and see attitude uh, towards the new administration. Um, will uh, the uh, uh, desire to achieve cooperation on things like climate change um, uh, result in trade offs, for example, that would um, go against what Japan perceives as its interests. 
um, uh, lowering of uh, the U.S. military presence or the conduct of exercises uh, in the area. Uh, this is speculation on my part, uh, but policy experts are very, very focused on, on, on things like that. Professor, thank you so much for your insight today. It's great being with you. Thank you for having me.